throne speech today and a budget on Monday. Both will be the first NDP versions of this province has seen in 16 years. Joining me to talk about that and a lot more, Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, Green Party leader Andrew Weaver joins us. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and thank you for tuning in and welcome to what is going to be a very busy day in BC politics and probably an even busier day for the two gentlemen who join me now who will cover it all, Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Welcome to you both. Uh, morning, Shane. Uh, before we get to the throne speech, uh, some interesting tidbits this morning that uh, we may see some drama around the speaker vote. I know uh, Michael Smith over at the province is reporting Daryl Plekis might be interested. Uh, any any fire there? Any any just smoke, Keith? I just checked with the clerk. So the, the way this works is every MLA has had until 6 p.m. last night to give a letter to the clerk saying they would not stand for the position of speaker. Uh, if there was more than one person who failed to send in a letter, then the clerk would have posted those names in the speaker's corridor at 9 o'clock. Mm. There's no posting, which means only one person is al- is putting their name, allowing their name to stand for speaker. So it seems highly unlikely that it would be Daryl Plekis. It sounds like it's Raj Shahan of the uh, in- veteran NDP MLA from Burnaby Edmonds. So there's only one name uh, going to be in front of the House, and that okay. person will be a climb. So it sounds like it's uh, from the NDP. Side. All right, so no excitement there, which is too bad. That would have been kind of fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, the house, uh, the, the the seat count in the house is tied actually at the moment. I guess with the uh, the Green NDP alliance having forty three seats, and uh, the uh, I got this count right, yeah, report, uh, yeah, right, and the uh, forty four, and the new the Liberals are now down to forty two because. Um, Never mind. (laughs) 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 Somehow or other, but there's 86 members in the House. Yeah, the Speaker doesn't vote. You take the Speaker out. There's one vacancy on the Liberal side. You take that out. So there was a potential for a tie vote in the House, but I don't think uh, I don't think that's where we're headed. I think Keith is right that we're headed for an NDP Speaker, and of course the New Democrats have an extra cushion now. Because there is a vacancy on the Liberal side, thanks to Christy Clark's resignation, and that could be there till February of next year, because the the government has six months to call the by-election. And why that's important, Shane, of course, is that the the NDP government is going to face two confidence votes yep. between now and the end of February. One on the throne speech that's to be delivered today. Uh, the the Greens are duty bound to support them on that throne on that confidence vote. But you know if. Just weird things happen. If they lose a confidence vote, there will be an election. And the second confidence vote that will come before Clark's uh, vacancy is filled, in all likelihood, will come on the budget in February. So uh, it's conceivable the Liberals will call, or the NDP will call that by election before then, but they've, they've got a lot of breathing room now that they did not have, mm-hmm. that we foresaw back in the drama of July when everybody's trying to figure out who exactly was going to run this province. Absolutely. Uh, Vaughn, I'm curious to know, so we're going to have the throne speech today. Uh, we're going to have a budget in quick succession on Monday. Uh, so how will the procedure work? Because usually we see a throne speech, there's some kind of debate, there's a confidence vote, uh, vote on the throne speech itself, and then we move to sort of budget matters. Uh, a lot more condensed now. So how will that process work? Uh, well, it's not a full-blown budget we're getting on Monday. As Keith noted, it's actually just a, a new set of estimates because you have a new government. Mm. So it, it builds on the budget that the Liberals tabled in February. Uh, we had a, a, a preliminary version of that budget. What we've not done is had the debate that takes place in the House 
on estimates, the spending estimates for each ministry. So each NDP minister will get up and defend what their ministry needs to spend for the year ahead, keeping in mind that half the year is already gone, and keeping in mind that some of the ministries are different because the New Democrats changed the cabinet alignment. Uh, the opposition critics uh, are all liberals, and many of them will be you know, liberals who've been in government for quite some time. They will uh, challenge that, and most of the fall, I think, will be taken up with that. Shane, because, uh, you know, the new government is going to want to defend what it's going to do, and the opposition is going to have questions. Well, then we also have four pieces of legislation that were promised in the agreement that the New Democrats and the Greens yeah. struck back in May. Uh, the NDP agreed that when the House sat, it would bring in four pieces of legislation. They are. One will set in motion the process for the referendum on proportional representation representation in the fall of 2018. That will include public consultation on the system. Uh, the second will deal preliminary way, at least, with some campaign finance reform. We're not sure what all they will do, but they certainly will ban union and corporate donations. The third piece of legislation promised, and I expect it will be delivered, would reform lobbying in British Columbia, toughen up the controls on lobbying, and bring in a ban on senior public servants who leave government going into the lobbying business for several years. The last thing that was promised and that will be delivered is a switch for the next election date. It will not be in the spring of 2021. Mm -hmm. It will be in the fall of 2021. <clears throat> That's to get the election date away from the budget cycle. And, of course, it's not written in stone. If the government falls before that, we will have an election. That's kind of the last date for the election, not the first one. And will that sort of guide what we hear today in the throne speech, Keith? Uh, Keith? What's that? Will that sort of will those four pieces of legislation sort of provide the backbone for what we're going to hear in today's throne speech? Yeah, the throne speeches are aspirational documents, uh, short of detail, uh, long on rhetoric. Uh, I expect uh, today's speech, which I'm told will last about thirty minutes, so you know there's going to be something in there. Uh, I think it'll touch on those those legislation that Vaughn uh, referenced, as well as you know other uh, NDP campaign promises. Uh, I think you're going to see some some mention of transit uh, in Metro Vancouver. Again, not necessarily specifics, but I think the affordability issue very much was on the minds of voters in the last election, and that's what propelled the NDP into power. And I expect this throne speech dominant theme to be about trying to provide, try to answer the affordability riddle for British Columbians when it comes to whether it's housing costs or just you know the daily grind of, of making ends meet. That's the heart and soul, I think, of, of the NDP messaging going forward, and that'll be reflected in today's throne speech. And uh, last but not least, uh, Vaughn, Todd Stone here is making a big deal about a Friday throne speech, calling it unnecessary, a uh, big burden on taxpayers because MLAs will travel back and forth twice over the weekend. Uh, any, any meat to that bone or no? Well, part of the blame for this is the Liberals. It, it, written into provincial law is a requirement that within three months of a new cabinet being sworn in after an election, uh, the new government uh, or the renewed government must table uh, a, new, a revised budget. And the three-month clock on this was started, because it's written into law, when the Liberals appointed their cabinet on June the 10th. So they, much of the time, 
has been used up by the liberals uh, flailing around trying to persuade the lieutenant governor to give us a new uh, election, uh, tabling that preposterous throne speech that we got in June. So the New Democrats, when they finally take office on June the 18th, a big chunk of the three months is gone. The drop-dead date for bringing in the new budget was September the 10th, which is a Sunday, so it's going to be a Monday, September the 11th. They backed up to have a throne. You have to have a throne speech and pick a new speaker before that, so that's why we're meeting on a Friday. The New Democrats hadn't had a lot of time to get ready. They went to the last possible date, but one of the reasons that <laughs> everything is happening so late is the fault of the Liberals, not the fault of the NDP. Pretty, pretty weak argument by, by Todd Stone, I think, to, you know, that it's going to cost taxpayers a lot of money. It's not going to cost taxpayers a lot of money to have MLAs here on a Friday. It is unusual. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been, one, I've been here a long time, never seen a throne speech on a Friday. I mean, that is certainly different. The House doesn't even normally sit on Fridays. But as one says, the timing was largely dictated by the B.C. Liberals, not so much by by, uh, by the NDP. The other thing, one other reason there was not a throne speech earlier this week, there was a large gathering, an annual gathering of the First Nations in uh, in Vancouver, which all politicians were at. And you weren't very well going to snub that gathering in favor of coming back here in the legislature. So that was also determining uh, sitting on Friday. And I'm not sure Todd Stone would publicly say that he didn't think people should go to that, that conference with First Nations. <laughs> all right, uh, let's take a quick break, guys, and we'll be back and decide uh, more with Vaughn and Keith, and we'll talk about the Massey bridge potentially biting the dust right here on inside politics on radio nl radio nl radio nl.com local first for kamloops computer center this is radio nl's inside politics here's nl news director shane woodford Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. One of the bigger uh, things in politics this past week uh, was the NDP announcement that they were going to suspend the uh, process uh, so far that was the Massey, I guess we called the Massey Bridge. There was no real name attached to it. Uh, so guys, $66 million spent, uh, a couple of payoffs to the contractors so far, $2 million each. And then the hydro costs, we're talking about $100 million in the bank already and uh, now nothing, Keith? Well, uh, certainly the, the bridge as, in, as envisioned by the previous Liberal government is dead in the water. The procurement pro- uh, process has been halted. Uh, all that now, all that work that's been done is, and there's a substantive amount of work that's been done in terms of on the engineering side. Uh, that remains sort of on hold, and so now they're going to have an outside consultant go out and take a look at what, how to solve the congestion problem on that particular area, whether we, we uh, twin the existing Massey tunnel or replace it or put another bridge up. It's quite cons- that consultant comes back and says, you know what? Maybe a bridge is needed here because the seismic concerns over a tunnel. I don't know about you, uh, but every time I go through that tunnel, I worry about you know the proverbial earthquake happening. Mm. A lot of people do not like that tunnel. There was an Angus Reid poll uh, commissioned by the road builders, admittedly, but still two-thirds of Metro Vancouver residents want a bridge there, and they like the bridge, and they don't want that tunnel. So it's conceivable they come back with a, a bridge option, but the, what's important here, Shane, I think, is the timing of when this thing should be built. So the big problem in Metro Vancouver is that the mayors of Metro did not want this bridge built yeah. right now, that their priority is replacing, and any listeners there in the Kamloops area has ever driven the Patello Bridge in New Westminster knows that bridge has to go. It's an unsafe 
a dangerous bridge. It needs to be replaced, and that's the top priority for the region. So I think the Patel Bridge will get the top priority, but it's still conceivable a bridge will be built to replace the Massey Tunnel, albeit not the 10-lane bridge envisioned by Christy Clark. Yeah. Vaughn, you, uh, you noted in one of your columns this week, uh, a lot of the work that the NDP looks like they want to do has already been essentially been done. Yeah, there's been a lot of engineering work done on that by the Ministry of Highways and by consultants that it retained. Uh, the New Democrats decided to keep the current Deputy Minister of Highways. They've kept the senior staff in the ministry. Uh, they've said that the starting point for their review will be all that technical work, so Keith's right. They may reach the same conclusion. Um, I think the real issue here, uh, the, the same conclusion being that a bridge is preferable to trying to twin the tunnel. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of engineering issues there, and, and as I said, if, if they stick to the engineering question, conclusion. The political issue is a little different. Well, the, I mean, there's some weird politics being played with bridges in the lower mainland. <laughs> and, and, and the basic thing is this. The Patello Bridge used to be a provincial government bridge. When the New Democrats reorganized transit services in the late 1990s, they gave wonderful gift, they gave the Patello to the Regional Transportation Authority. So it's now a regional bridge. The Port Man the exist sorry the um, the Massey Tunnel is still a provincial highway and a provincial tunnel. So when Christy Clark decided to replace the Massey Tunnel, she was dealing with a provincial project. When the mayors came back and said, "No, no, the Patello should be first, that's because it was their bridge. So there's a whole lot of politics being played with this. The really interesting question will be if you sit down and ask a straight engineering question, which is, given the risks and the traffic levels, where should you put your dollars first? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they come back, and, as Keith is, and say, no, the Patello, it's even older than the Massey. Massey's 60 years old. Patello's, what, 80 years old. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they come back and say, we're going to do the Patello first, and never mind who owns it. It needs to be fixed. And they may come back and say the Massey's going to be a bridge, but we'll have to be down the road. Shane, the other big question they have to solve, and we've got no indication how they're going to solve it, the Massey replacement was going to be paid for with tolls. Yeah. So was the Patello replacement. Now that tolls are out, I don't know how the hell they're going to pay for any of this stuff. Yeah, That's and, a big question. Yeah, it is a huge question. And by the way, the Patello Bridge is one of the single most scariest bridges I have ever crossed. Uh, it is, un like, it is, I get what Keith said about going through the tunnel. Remember when it caught fire Oof. a few years ago? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, I mean, I had two classmates, high school classmates, uh, killed on that bridge. In, oh, my God. In car accidents. I mean, it's, there's been a lot of fatalities. I mean, I have memories of driving over that thing in rainstorms, in the, in, in the darkness of night. It's a, it's a scary thing, and it needs to be replaced a heck of a lot quicker than we need a new Massey Tunnel or Massey Bridge. But that said, the Massey, the Massey Tunnel is one of the sources of gridlock in the entire province, and uh, I'm curious to know, can they get away with delaying addressing that without paying a political price around that region, or no? Well, they've got two great big transit lines they have to fund as well in the lower mainland. I mean, people that live outside Metro Vancouver must be just rolling their eyes at this stuff. But oh, yeah, totally. there's a brand new transit line promised and that they're apparently are going to build uh, through the city of Vancouver along Broadway. And Surrey, of course, has got political parties all lined up to support building of a new light rail network in Surrey. So... Uh, you know, this is the hard part of governing, right? You can promise all this stuff in opposition, say we support all of it. When you get into government, you've got to set the order of priorities. And you're right, Shane, if, you, if you're going to build one of them with scarce dollars, you may have to put another one off for years.
Yeah. And uh, when it comes to removing the tolls and stuff, of course, uh, you mentioned outside the lower mainland, one of the big bones of contention, and you hear it a lot in the interior, is, hey, listen, we paid the full ride on the Coquihalla, uh, and those guys down there can't even pay a couple of years on on a few bridges. And and that definitely has an impact in the interior where the NDP needs some seats. Yeah, no, I I certainly hear that. I certainly get that in correspondence from some interior residents that uh, how unfair this is. And you're right, uh, I think NDP is going to have, at the end of the day, a real struggle to win seats outside of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island, because I think over time you'll see their policies really don't reflect the interest necessarily in terms of priorities of of, uh, sort of interior and northern residents. It's very much become a suburban urban party. That's what got them into power is winning those seats in the eastern suburbs of Metro Vancouver. They lost Columbia River, you know, they lost Skeena, and they they were fine to lose that because they were able to pick up seats in Surrey and Maple Ridge and Burnaby. And they're going to have to hang on to those seats, which means, you know, not having tolls and uh, and doing addressing issues that are sort of unique to metro region and not so much a priority outside of metro. And it's a, it's a real balancing act they're going to have to struggle with. And Vaughn, on the Massey Bridge, I'm curious, that one of the things that Claire Trevena said was, was this talk about a social license for that project. And I get that there's some mixed feelings about it, but how much of that social license relies on not just replacing the bridge, but actually replacing or enhancing the highway, like right up to the Oak Street Bridge or Highway 99 on the other side, so you don't have this wonderful bridge in the middle of an antiquated road system? Every politician who uses the term social license should be stopped in mid-scrum and asked <laughs> to define what the hell they mean by it. Where do you get one of those things? Yeah. <laughs> it's used all the time by people to say, oh, this doesn't have social license, which usually translates into, I don't support it. Yeah. Uh, My friends and I don't support it. Um, yes, there is a problem with uh, traffic through Richmond and into the city of Vancouver if you replace uh, the Massey Tunnel. But... <laughs> You know, you don't you don't rebuild the entire highway from the American border to downtown Vancouver in one swoop. You build it in sections, and that I think will be the conclusion the New Democrats reach as well. Um, as I said, if they stick to the engineering and traffic management issues, if they're going to keep playing politics with it, you might get a different context. And it, you know, the social license thing is, I mean, all due respect to Claire Trevena, is complete nonsense. If you ask any motorist in Vancouver, you're going to get an answer back, yes, I want another bridge somewhere, I want another highway. Congestion needs to be fixed, and whether it's a, a massy bridge, 10 lanes or 8 lanes, motorists want it. And that Angus Reid poll, in fact, it was 75% of people basically want a bridge. And uh, you, there's no getting around that. That, to me, if you're looking for social license, it's right there. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up in the news. Uh, we'll get right back to uh, Keith and Vaughn on the other side and talk about ICBC as rates keep on rising right here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer, the government coming out this week, uh, addressing the issue of ICBC, something that, Keith, you've called on this show a time bomb, and we got a peek at the finances there. They're not very pretty, and I guess the big question here is, can the government right this ship? Well, I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, it's a $600 million loss last year, uh, similar, well, a multi-hundred million dollar loss in the current fiscal year. Uh, a couple things going on here. The Part of the problem was caused by the B.C. Liberals draining one of the reserves of money going into general revenue. So that that's 
where one problem starts. But another problem is it affects more than just ICBC. A lot of insurance agencies are struggling with this in automobile insurance. We talked about it in the past. Uh, the escalating number of accidents and claims, mo- mostly because of distracted driving, rear-end collisions, which cause soft tissue uh, uh, injuries, which cause uh, result in litigation and money payout from ICBC. So, a rapid rise in the number of crashes, a rise in the, m- the amount of money they have to pay for injuries. That is a trend that is not stopping or shows no signs of ending. And David Eby, the Attorney General responsible for ICBC, has hinted he's looking at capping injury costs, injury payouts for soft tissue injuries, as they do in other provinces. Right now, you can you go to court in BC, you have lawyers. ICBC has to have lawyers. Uh, the result is, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in payout. Far more costs associated with that than in other provinces. And that's where he said it's not no fault insurance, but it's going to be a reduction in how much money can be paid out in uh, in injuries. But you're, they're going to run into a huge lobby effort mm-hmm. from the lawyers involved in this because it is a big industry of injury lawyers, and it's going to be a messy political fight. But um, short of that, I don't see how they write that ICBC ship. Yeah, Vaughn, one of the other things that caught my eye there when David Eby held his press conference was his claim that uh, the previous government deliberately deceived voters with with the finances at the insurance corporation. Anything there? Well, the previous government knew there was a serious problem at ICBC. That's why they sent the whole thing out to a review that sat on it until after the election. So there's, you know, the Liberals knew there was a problem there, and they didn't deal with it before the election because a lot of the stuff that needs to be done isn't going to be very popular. Uh, That gives the New Democrats some leeway. They can rightly blame the problem on the Liberals, uh, both because the Liberals... The Liberals, this is kind of weird, but they held down rates artificially, and they also siphoned money out of the company. So, as I said, that gives the NDP leeway to do what they did this week, which is raise rates. And EB picked some other easy targets, speeders, you know, red light cameras, uh, distracted driving. I mean, none of us ever ever engage in distracted driving, right? We don't check our email when we're driving <laughs> or or talk on the phone, right? I mean, that's other people. So, I mean, the, the early targets are easy. Keith identified the big challenge for E.B. and the New Democrats. So E.B.'s a lawyer. <laughs> he's he's, he's got to go after, he's got to take on his own profession on this thing. Yeah. I mean, the trial lawyers will say, oh, it's all ICBC's fault. ICBC fights everything. They force everything into court. We have to go to court and defend their client. Well, most other provinces have managed to rein in legal costs at a much lower level than ICBC, and they've also capped injury settlements. The New Democrats got badly beaten up back in the 1990s when they tried to bring in no fault. They took on the trial lawyers, and they lost. They're going to have to have a rematch. Um, They don't have to go to full-blown no fault. But if they're going to get control of this thing, and they can, they're going to have to take on speeders, yes, figure out the problem of distracted driving, which is dogging every auto insurer on the continent, and they are going to have to go after legal costs and injury payouts for minor injuries. We are way out of line with the rest of the country, on on, particularly on legal costs and payouts for minor injuries. All right. Well, then let's go back to the main point here. And it sounds like the big the big issue is legal, and the other stuff might be a bit of low hanging fruit. So, Keith, can they wage a war against the lawyers and and overcome them so the drivers get some good rates or no? Well, the NDP is very sensitive about this because they have a history on this, and that goes back to the 1990s when there was talk of bringing in no fault insurance. It absolutely 
consume the party and the government at the time of a huge uh, lobbying effort from the disability uh, associations, uh, trial lawyers. It forced the Indian, it, it threatened to wreck an entire party convention one year, I recall. Uh, they managed to take it off the floor because the NDP gets totally consumed by policy debates and internal factions start ripping each other apart. They were able to defuse that by basically stepping back and saying, okay, we're not going to bring in no fault. So what we're talking about is not revisiting the no, the no fault insurance issue, but it is potentially going to meet a huge political pushback from a lot of entrenched interest groups who have considerable political power. And it's going to be interesting to see if, I mean, all right now that E.B.'s done is just flagged it as something he's interested in perhaps looking at. Uh, he hasn't said he's going to go there. But it is a political minefield if he were to go there, even though from a public policy point of view it makes a lot of sense when you compare us. Why, why are we the outlier in B.C. when it comes to this issue of uh, soft tissue payments with no cap and no limit and all the lawyers can make all the money they want? But it's, uh, it's going to be a tough political uh, hand gr- grenade that to David Eby and his colleagues are going to have to juggle. Yeah. Uh, last word to you, Vaughn, on this. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, even though Mr. Eby says, I'm, I'm hoping this will be the last year that I have to announce a, a rate increase, uh, I think there's going to be rate increases in the future, yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, then, and the next rate increase he'll wear, because the first one is a freebie, right? It's, it's the Liberals' fault. It certainly is. But he's going to have to take a lot of action in the next year to show that he's done at least as much to minimize so that the next rate increase isn't the 8% that we got this week. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen, you've got a busy day ahead, so I want to get you free up to, to tackle that. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it and look forward to your coverage throughout the day. And talk to you next week. Sounds Bye. good. Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, uh, Global News and Vancouver Sun, respectively. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll talk to the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver, on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back and uh, welcome back to the show to Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. Andrew, how are you? Very well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Hey, listen, we've uh, we've gone through months and months of, uh, of uh, agony and twists and turns <laughs> and developments here. Uh, and today we're going to have the first official sitting of the legislature with the throne speech rolling out today. We're actually going to see how this thing works after, as I mentioned, a ton of speculation, a ton of interest, a ton of uh, a ton of stuff. So, uh, how do you expect this thing to roll out? I actually uh, expect it to be somewhat anticlimactical. There'll be uh, no surprises, I'm sure, in the throne speech. Uh, there'll be uh, next Monday. We'll be tinkering around the budget that was orig- originally uh, introduced by the Liberals. Because uh, it hasn't been a lot of time, so uh, so I'm I'm very optimistic that you know we'll see uh, statements with respect to the establishment of innovation commissions, emerging economy task force, things that are in our confidence and supply agreement, and uh, I think the news might be uh, who the speaker is because it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, rumors have it that it, uh, it it could be somebody from the BC Liberals, and that would be quite exciting. Yeah, do you have any inside knowledge on what's going on there, Andrew, or no? Uh, I've spoken to so many people, but you never know until the actual moment uh, what is going to transpire, because uh, this is BC politics, of course, and uh, never, there's never a dull day in BC politics. Yeah, and of course, the, the rumors that you're referring to, I believe, are around BC Liberal MLA Daryl Plekis, yes? 
I would never confirm a name one way or the other. <laughs> and so, but there, there's, uh, it's, it's been a couple of names mentioned. Okay, interesting. So uh, that vote will happen uh, in mere minutes here. But one of the big pieces of legislation to hit the table, banning union and corporate donations. I know that uh, that is a big button issue for you. How involved are you or the party in, in forming that legislation and what can we expect to see? Well, obviously, uh, it was a key aspect of our confidence and supply agreement, and we have had discussions about the type of things we'd like to see in that legislation. You know, we divvy these uh, these various files up amongst my three colleagues. It's not me who's talking about that, but 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 I I, I think you'll find that we're very pleased with what results from this uh, legislation. It has been uh, quite a collaborative effort, and we're you know we're. we're showing that this can work. The other one uh, that uh, is going to be big, of course, uh, is the legislation that will set the stage for that referendum on proportional representation. Any idea as we kind of lay the foundation work here, how that might work? Uh, again, that's uh, in the hands of one of my other colleagues. We've given up things, and uh, there will be obviously some form of enabling legislation for a referendum in the fall. Uh, you know, the question itself and, and things like that are probably going to you know, not be in the legislation, but uh, there certainly will be a legislation enabling a referendum on proportional representation. And obviously we have to enter some period of discussion and consultation before the actual question is, is put to the people. Uh, fair to say, though, that you want a clear question, a no-nonsense question. Uh, that would be my preference. Uh, it, you know, there's nothing, you know, helpful about having triple negatives. What do you, would it be possible, not to be possible, to be possible to have a referendum on this or that? You know, that just confuses people. Let's just come straight up, you know, it's a very straight up question. And I, I think that's what people want to. Yeah. Uh, let's get back to how the legislature will work. Over the last few weeks, uh, you have been a vocal critic of some of the things the NDP have done, which have raised eyebrows here and there. Uh, how, will we, how will you work with the New Democrats uh, within the confines of the legislature itself? Well, we, we, have, we have actually a very good working relationship. We remain in the opposition. We are not in a coalition government. And that's, that's exactly what we wanted, because we know that there are many things that we agree upon and there are others we disagree upon. We will agree to disagree, and we will fulfill our role in opposition to hold government account to those issues that uh, we, we don't have an agreement with. You will have uh, noticed that, that we were quite critical of the Portman Bridge, uh, but we've been very supportive on some of the other ones, like to put the Massey Bridge to... Uh, uh, to 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 a re- in, uh, external review of the whole process there, you know, a wonderful piece of policy, particularly in light of the scandal that has emerged yesterday from the construction of the Portman Bridge. So there's a whole bunch of you know things that we'll support, a bunch of things we won't, and that's healthy. And and uh, you know, our, our role in opposition is if we don't like something, it's not just to criticize, but it's to offer alternatives and to work with you know stakeholders to try to build public support for our alternatives other than those being proposed by the government. And I think you'll see some of that happening over the coming years. You know, we want this to work. We said if you want it to work, and as direct consequence, it will work. We, we, we have a very good working relationship with Mr. Horgan and, and, and Ms. James, and, and we've met quite a number of the ministers, and I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, there'll be some tusky times, but that doesn't mean we have to have another election. Uh, on the Port Man, I'm curious uh, on this topic, and I'll throw this question at you. Um, do you think that uh, with, the A, the politics of not having one fair toll for all crossings initially by the Liberals, and then, two, having the NDP basically uh, remove the tolls and maybe create a bit of a poison pill there, does it, does it kind of put a big roadblock as far as mobility pricing goes? Well, that was our concern. Is we're, we're obviously not objecting to some form of mobility pricing. Uh, but we would have uh, uh, liked to have seen that brought in first, and then tolls removed secondly. The reason why, once you remove a toll like has been done, it, it, it really puts, as you 
say, puts a poison pill in place that suggests that other infrastructure, major infrastructure projects will have a difficult time being built because the tolling system is no longer acceptable. I think it was a reckless public policy for them to do this. It was a, a, a politically savvy promise because obviously it won them some ridings that, that gave them enough seats to form a minority government. But but it's it's not something we, we support. Now, we'll, we obviously will support mobility pricing if it comes in through the consultation with the mayors. Um, but in the meantime, we've just dumped a whole bunch of public debt on uh, a, a, a whole bunch of uh, self-funded debt onto public debt, and that's we do not support. But again, uh, ultimately, you have to ask the question, do we in British Columbia want an election because the BC Greens disagree with the NDP over the elimination of the portmanteaus? I don't think so. And I think people would say we were reckless if we forced an election based on one particular issue like that. All right. Uh, let's turn our attention to Monday's budget. I'm, I'm kind of curious, and I don't know if you can provide any light on this, with the throne speech today and the budget coming fast on Monday, uh, usually there's some debate and a confidence vote around the throne speech before we see a budget. Any idea from your side of things how that process will work between the throne speech and Monday's budget? It's, it's, it's interesting. You're absolutely right. Normally we have the, we have, uh, it doesn't have to be, but normally we have a throne speech that awaits the budget. Uh, the BCNDP need to get the budget in sooner than later and get it passed sooner than later. The reason why, of course, is our supply agreement actually runs out this month and it has to be the civil service, you know, nobody will get paid. So, uh, the government can't run. So we, so the budget has to be expedited. So I, I'm, I haven't actually had a discussion with Mike Farmworth, our House Speaker, as to uh, how we're going to debate, but I suspect you'll see us debating uh, and moving through the budget relatively quickly because it's important that we pass the budget, and we may debate the phone speech after the budget. I, I haven't uh, got that confirmed yet. Okay. Uh, as far as the budget itself, and we're all fascinated how, how this relationship between yourselves and the, and the, the governing NDP work, uh, did, you, did you have any input? Did you have any you know, flexibility to kind of uh, have a say in the budget or no? Well, we, you know, the budget is something that is done by government. We do, we do not have cabinet, cabinet confidentiality. So obviously in our confidence supply agreement, we were, we were there working to ensure that priorities for us were included in that agreement. So we would be very surprised if there were things that that, that were mentioned that you know that the things in that agreement were ignored, and I don't think there will be. So, so, so I suspect the the BCNDP will have some of their priorities, uh, but largely it will be based on the Liberal budget because there simply has not been time for a major scale tinkering of uh, realignment of the budget that the Liberals brought in you know earlier this summer. Uh, we have to have a budget passed by the end of September. That's critical, and then the real budget the. the, the, the budget that will embrace the, the, the throne speech will probably be the one in February of 2018. Okay, so just to be clear, you think that we're going to look at what the BC Liberals did last budget, and there's just going to be sort of some, some modifications there as opposed to a complete overhaul? Yeah, it would be tinkering here, tinkering there. Look, for example, there's going to have to be money for the announcement that adult basic education uh, is going to have reinstated funding. There's going to have to be some tinkering uh, in the budget about uh, the portmanteaus. There's going to have to be some tinkering in the budget about uh, promises with respect to, uh, you know, uh, other things that they've done, who, uh, Nazi tunnel replacement study, things like that. So there has to be uh, a, a bunch of uh, small things. But, but the BCNDP, while they've made a number of promises, None of those have been substantive in terms of dollar costs or prohibitive in terms of dollar costs. They could all fit easily within the, the outrageous surplus that was left behind by the BC Liberals. I'm curious to know, I was talking to Hamish Telford on the show last week, and, and he made a point of mentioning that he thinks that, uh, that you might be regretting not uh, putting yourself into cabinet with your agreement with the NDP. Uh, what do you, how, do you, how do you respond to that? 
And no, I, I have no regrets at all, neither does either of my colleagues. Uh, the reason why is that if you're in cabinet and you now have cabinet co- uh, confidentiality, you're now, you're now unable to hold government to account. Green, uh, Greens were elected across uh, people voted green across british columbia for us to advance our ideas our platform we can do that in in through a healthy tension that exists within minority once we're within a, um, a coalition we get co-opted not whether we want to or not we're going to be seen as one of the same we don't want to be seen as one of the same we want to ensure for example that we can hold the bc uh, ndp to account for their, co- their commitments on the trans mountain pipeline we want to hold them to account on their commitments on education it's a lot harder to do that if you're in a coalition, because in some sense you've agreed to, to, you know, to, to, to actually be part of the executive council, than it would be in, uh, outside of that. Uh, so so we're not, a, not a second of regret. I'm curious to know if tactically that, uh, that you're aware of, the, of uh, and if you kind of construct your criticism in order to kind of make sure that your party has a separate identity from the NDP. I mean, I know the BC Liberals are trying to marry you two guys together with a green NDP kind of slogan, that kind of thing. And I'm sure you're aware of the history of what happens to parties that support uh, other parties in minority situations in the following election. Well, largely uh, the, 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 the historical context would be the coalitions. We just have to look to the Liberal Democrats in the UK where they were a coalition with the Conservatives and got literally wiped out thereafter. Um, you know, we have a minority situation. We have a referendum on proportional representation. Our CASA agreement has us both agreeing to campaign for the Yes campaign on that. So we've got the NDP and the BC Greens both campaigning for proportional representation. You know, um, Interestingly enough, this, uh, there are elements within the BC Liberals who have long supported this. Mike DeYoung's on record. Even Christy Clark was on record supporting this. And they've had two elections, two referenda before. So, so I, I, uh, you're right. It's, it's important that we distinguish ourselves from the BC NDP. But to be perfectly blunt, the BC Liberals have imploded. They're nowhere right now. They're just, uh, and they have no credibility on almost every file because they literally took the throne speech. From, they, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see today's throne speech sound exactly like the throne speech the Liberals put forward. So, 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 so they, how can they criticize the portmanteau? They can't. They just capitulated on that. How, so the Liberals have, have so little credibility now because they were all over the map. And some of their MLAs seem to be coming unstuck with some of their comments. We have the MLA from, from Silhouette Kent starting to talking about how he wants BC to build a, you know, to build a tourist attraction by carving some cupped hands facing the sky in a mountainside. Like, are you kidding me? This is what's happening with the BC Liberals. So, so I, I, frankly, the, the party that I see on their death throes are the BC Liberals, uh, because I don't know where, what they stand for now. They're all over the map. They're, they were supporting green policy. They're not. Their MLAs are saying whatever. It's just, it's just a gong show in the BC Liberals. And anyone who's been following BC politics will realize that you know, they have not been an opposition party for the last couple of months. They've just been silent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're almost out of time. I want to throw this at you really quick. If you're a betting man, uh, do you see four years in power between yourselves and the NDP or no? I actually see four years and about six months. Uh, the reason why is legislation will come down, and that legislation will move to a full fixed date, so we don't have the silliness of having an election without a past budget. Again, this is a longstanding uh, being supported by Vicki Huntington and Bob Simpson when they were in independent MLAs, the BC Greens and the BC NDP. And frankly, most people who follow the political scene, fall elections once you pass the budget, um, are, are at least you can, you, can, you can have an election campaign with the numbers there, not the kind of mysterious numbers that, that aren't actually validated. You, you, you see, we, just, we finally just had last year's books, public accounts revealed. 
we would have a campaign based on knowing what's there. We wouldn't have to rush a budget at the last minute to, to, to get some supply through. Uh, so I think uh, it'll, it'll be four years, six months. All right. Uh, we're going to be watching with fascination as uh, the first sitting of the legislature begins to unfold today. Andrew, you've been generous, uh, generous with your time. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's Andrew Weaver, leader of the B.C. Green Party. And as we speak, the legislature is about to resume sitting. The first NDP government in 16 years in this province should be a fairly historic day. Throne speech coming our way at 2 o'clock this afternoon. That's it for Inside Politics here on Radio NL. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again right here on NL next week. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news. Some Inside Politics bonus content. Shortly after we went off the air on NL, quite a spectacle unfolded in the legislature with BC Liberals MLA Daryl Plekis taking the speaker job, infuriating his Liberal colleagues in doing so, but giving the governing NDP some breathing room. We couldn't let that pass without doing something on the podcast, so I reached out to University of the Fraser Valley political science professor Hamish Telford to get his thoughts. Uh, obviously, uh, some high drama in the legislature uh, this morning with uh, Daryl Plekis, a uh, person from your neck of the woods, uh, basically turning his back on the party and taking the speaker's role. Uh, let's start off with his move first, and then we'll sort of discuss the impacts, uh, which you would know of locally. But uh, surprise to you or no? I think unexpected, but there were reports back in May and June uh, that the NDP had been wooing uh, Mr. Plekis for the speaker role. Uh, to see if they could perhaps get him to be uh, speaker, and, and that would aid them in bringing down Christy Clark's government. Uh, if that was the case, uh, Mr. Plakis didn't go along with it back then, but the situation has changed, and uh, he evidently thought it was in the best interest of his constituents and, and the province to, to take the role now. Now, obviously, uh, that area is a solid sort of B.C. Liberal stronghold. I assume his, at least the feedback I'm getting from both the caucus and the party, is his uh, future or lack thereof with the party is certainly in doubt. Uh, how do you think that'll play out locally? It'll be interesting to see. I, w- I would point out that uh, this, this constituency sort of has a, uh, a history of Mavericks. Uh, it was previously represented by John Van Dongen, uh, who became a maverick in the Liberal Party and a bitter opponent of, of Christy Clark. And in the 2013 election, he ran as an independent against Daryl Plakis, and, and Daryl uh, uh, beat him uh, quite handily. And it was quite clear that uh, the people of Abbotsford South wanted a Liberal member uh, of Parliament, not the person who had served them for a dozen years or, or so and done so effectively. So uh, I think going forward, uh, if, if Mr. Plekis chooses to run again, it would likely be as an independent or with another party, uh, and the Liberals would choose uh, someone else to, to run for them. And I think given the history of the riding, it would quite likely uh, go Liberal. Yeah. Uh, I know that uh, Mr. Coleman, the interim leader, uh, has, uh, and I don't know if it's just sort of speaking emotionally in the aftermath of the moment, but raised the specter of, of a recall to try and get Plekis out of there. I assume, personally, I would assume that's an empty threat. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, I suppose that's something that they could try to undertake um, if they combine the volunteers uh, in the riding and and uh, if 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 constituents are that upset with the move, you know I think that uh, this is not quite the same as defecting and crossing the floor. Uh, this is to take a nonpartisan role, and uh, uh, I think it's it's somewhat sort of conforms to to Daryl's uh, background. He he was a, a university professor for a long time. Uh, was not a deep partisan, and uh, I, I, I think that they knew who they were electing then, and I, I, I would hope that they would accept uh, him taking this position uh, as being different than crossing the floor. 
Yeah. Uh, now, one of the big issues you and I have talked about numerous occasions leading up to uh, this first sitting of the NDP government is how this uh, situation would work in the legislature. Uh, this definitely gives the NDP some breathing room, yeah? It sure does. Now it takes the, the NDP uh, Green Alliance up to 44 seats and, and the Liberals are down to 41. So uh, they really do have that uh, comfortable majority of three. But, of course, those are the three green uh, NDPs, and, and we're all talking today about Daryl Plekis, uh taking uh, the speaker uh, role. I've just described him uh, as a maverick, and academics, by their very nature, are, are lone wolves and academics, and I would point out that the, the NDP government is now relying on the support of another academic, Dr. Weaver, <laughs> and uh, he has shown uh, no hesitation over the course of the summer to chastise John Horgan and the NDP when he has seen fit, and I'm sure he will continue to do so. Again, that's sort of just the academic in him speaking out uh, when he sees problems. And so uh, while they do have that three-seat majority, they're, they're really going to have to manage that relationship with the Greens very carefully to ensure that the government survives. Now we have the, the internal BC Liberal Party leadership race. We've got now some more breathing room uh, with the number of seats, both with Clark resigning and now with uh, Mr. Plekis assuming the speaker role. Uh, does this change uh, your thoughts on when we might see another election? I know that initially you thought perhaps the spring or, or summer of the coming year. It does, um, assuming again that the uh, the Green uh, NDP alliance holds up. If that, as long as that holds up, uh, then uh, they should be able to to govern, um, you know, almost uh, indefinitely. Although I would point out that minority governments in Canada, even when sort of deliberately supported by an external party, typically last only about two years and. Uh, uh, at that point in time, all governments sort of need a refresh. We've seen that in the federal government. You know, Justin Trudeau has a comfortable majority, but they've, they've just reset cabinet shuffle, trying to reestablish uh, policy platforms. And governments often need that at the halfway point or after two years, and even more so after a minority government. So, yes, I, I, I previously said that an election would be likely next spring, uh, but I, I would retract that now and say perhaps the spring after. Okay, so you still don't see a full four-year term out of these guys? I don't, even though that's what they have committed to. Uh, I still think that that is a, a very long reach for a, a, a minority government, particularly one which is uh, quite, quite a slim minority. And I guess my last question is just on the B.C. Liberals' front. Uh, they've been sort of dealt a number of blows here with, uh, with Christy Clark going, uh, Mr. Plekis now taking the speaker role. Uh, they've got the leadership race, which I'm sure will cause some, uh, some interesting situations. Uh, do you think the party is uh, in any kind of trouble or, or no? Uh, they're beginning to look uh, a little bit less solid than, than they were a, a few months ago. I think that the, the reality of now losing the election has set in, uh, and so people are taking stock of that. There are certain recriminations. Uh, and then uh, as they go into a leadership uh, race, uh, people start to sort of chart uh, different um, paths forward for the party, and to the extent that those candidates are in the caucus, then the caucus starts to look divided, particularly as caucus members line up and give their support to one candidate or another. So it does become uh, a little bit more difficult for the Liberals. Uh, but this is the normal sort of course of, of events in a, in a Democratic Party. Yeah, no kidding. All right, Amish, let it go with that. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Bye now. We will take a quick break. And on the other side, Premier John Horgan joins us on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First, for Kamloops Computer Center. 
This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Pleasure to be joined by Premier John Horgan, who's having a pretty good day today. Uh, John, let's rewind to this morning. How did the whole Daryl Plekis' speaker situation evolve? How did it happen? Well, Mike Farnworth, uh, the government house leader, has been uh, preparing for the session and the throne speech that happened today. And, of course, the speaker and who w- the speaker's chair and who would be in the, that chair has been a topic of much interest over the past number of months as this historic change in government has been taking place. And it was Mike's responsibility to work within our caucus to find uh, uh, who would be the best person to take that role. And he expanded his discussions to other people in other parties. And and he and Mr. Plekis uh, came to an agreement that it would be a, a good job for him to hold and a, another symbol to the people of B.C. that Liberals, Greens and Conservatives can, and, and New Democrats uh, can work together uh, for the interests of British Columbians. So it was uh, sometime in the past week or so. I don't know the exact details. I wasn't involved in it, but... Uh, I'm pleased that Mr. Plekis has taken on the job, and I'm extremely happy that uh, we'll be able to work with people from all political parties to uh, improve lives of British Columbians. I know that uh, no matter what the situation is, John, you're going to strike the best tone, but uh, how much of a relief was it to have uh, the Plekis situation develop and get that extra seat breathing room? Well, it makes a big difference for a whole bunch of things. For example, uh, there's a First Minister's Conference slated for October, Uh, that would have been extremely difficult for me to attend because uh, the House would be sitting. So that gives me a bit of flexibility uh, to work with uh, the two House leaders, government and opposition, so that I could go back to Ottawa and represent BC's interest. And and very critical at this point in time with the fire season continuing, uh, softwood lumber still not resolved, and the opioid crisis uh, getting worse, it appears, by the day. So Very important for me to be in Ottawa with the other premiers and the prime minister to make sure BC's interests are represented. So that's just one example of having the flexibility of an independent speaker, Mr. Plekis, allowing us to have a bit more space uh, in our government so that we can we can travel and then uh, whether it be on a trade mission or, or representing the interests of of uh, the province uh, at, at other conferences. I think that the citizens expect that, and uh, the, the close majority made that difficult to think about, and now it's a little bit easier. All right. Uh, the throne speech is one thing. Uh, there is obviously a document that is sort of lacking in finite detail. A budget is quite the other thing, even though it's not a full budget. Uh, you're really going to flesh out what we heard today on Monday. What, we might, what might we see on Monday? Well, that's the uh, advantage. Uh, we've been seven weeks now in government. We've done a number of things right off the hop. Uh, we've uh, not been uh, been idle, and we wanted to. It's unusual to have a throne speech on a Friday and then a budget right away on the Monday, but we made a commitment uh, that we would be back in the legislature in early September. We had a first leader, first minister, or first nations meeting rather. Uh, in Vancouver at the Leaders Gathering, which has been happening for a number of years. That was uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So we couldn't start at the beginning of the week. And so we wanted to make sure we got the the blueprint for the government's plan in the form of the throne speech out there for the public to think about, and then to put some flesh on that come Monday when Carol James uh, updates our financial situation. That's where we'll talk about uh, what the growth rate looks like, how we're going to deal with the fire situation, where the capital spend expenditures are going to be, what hospitals are going to be built, what roads are going to be built, where are we going to start addressing the school issues. Those are the things that matter to people, and we can't wait to get going on that come next week. Obviously, you can't spill a lot of those details, but uh, how difficult uh, is it to hammer out this in such short a period of time with so many financial pressures? 
Well, it has been a challenge, and the fire season, uh, you know, I think everyone recognizes it was well beyond anyone's expectation. Uh, we have a usual number, and a number that is in the budget annually that rarely comes close to meeting the cost, but this year it's just been completely blown away. We're in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, well beyond budget, and that's going to be a challenge. But again, uh, we all have to hang together. And what has been inspiring to me in my visits to Kamloops and then to the interior and to Prince George is that people have opened their hearts and their homes to help those that have been dislocated through evacuations. And, and now we need to work with businesses, whether they be agriculture, tourism, small businesses that have had their, their, their year really ruined. And, you know, for, for tourism operators, they, they depend on the summer months to make a living throughout the year and we want to be there to help out and that's why again it's so important that i be be back in ottawa making the case to the federal government that we need to have significant resources to address these challenges on the opioid crisis it's uh it's just horrifying uh and while there was a slight decline provincially last month here in Kamloops, we saw the numbers actually increase which was highly unusual uh but at the end of the day these are lives what if anything can you do to kind of curb this thing well, we have uh, appointed a dedicated minister, which we committed to, uh, Judy Darcy. She's responsible for mental health and addictions, and she has been working every day to look at uh, other jurisdictions, whether they be here in Canada, the U.S., or, or around the world, at what are they doing to address the opioid crisis. It's not just happening here in B.C., but, but we first and foremost have to stop the flood of fentanyl into our communities. That's a law enforcement issue. That's a border patrol issue. Again, working with the federal government, we can address that. I'm hopeful we can address that. But when it comes to addictions and addiction services, we need, I believe, to be working every single day to help those people when they do finally uh, find clarity through the addiction to seek help that we're there with treatment services. And, and that, that is critically important in Kamloops. It's critically important in the north and in our major urban centers as well. And I, I just, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it becomes more horrifying by the month. And it's just not acceptable to me. It's not acceptable to the people of BC. And we're going to work as hard as we can to find the solutions that we need to get this thing behind us. Uh, what's the first big piece of legislation that's going to hit the table, John? Uh, banning big money, the proportional representation, what's it going to be? Well, we're going to do the budget and throne debates uh, for next week and into the week after, and then uh, we'll have the debate on uh, big money. We'll have the debate on uh, preparing for uh, the uh, the referendum on pr- proportional representation. There's a number of other issues that we have to bring forward as well, and, and we need to uh, close the loopholes on fixed-term leases so that renters can uh, be assured that they're not going to be gouged by landlords. And we need to put resources into the residential tenancy branch to protect landlords as well as tenants. So there's much work to do. The housing crisis is not just confined, as you know, to uh, the lower mainland. It's a problem right around B.C. Homelessness is an issue that now is even more acute, Uh, certainly in Cache Creek, where uh, just at Boston Flats, uh, I went through and saw two uh, manufactured homes standing where 32 used to be. That's an enormous hit in a small community. So we've got lots of rebuilding to do. And uh, we're going to need the resources and the legislative approval to make that happen. Uh, how key is the housing affordability front, John? Uh, I, I was talking to somebody earlier today and made the point that your government could do all sorts of great things. But if you don't deal with housing affordability, all the money saved on, say, poverty reduction on all the other fronts could just be hoovered up in rent and mortgage costs. That's right. And and that's why we're, we're committed to bringing forward a... Uh, a renter's rebate, uh, $400, that will be uh, announced shortly. 
the, the how we how we will uh, roll that out to help renters uh, and also on the affordability side in terms of those who want to try and get into the housing market we need to build more supply and that's why i put selena robinson in charge of both municipal affairs and housing because we need to make sure we're working with municipal councils to get the approvals we need to build the houses and in the density in the urban centers that will make sense. Uh, so we need to build social housing. We need to build rent purpose housing as well as market-based housing. And, and we're committed to doing that. And uh, it's going to take a, a, a team effort, though, developers, city councils, and uh, the provincial and federal government to make it happen. All right. Uh, two quick questions here. Uh, one still on housing. How do you address speculation and, and bring those prices down uh, without seriously sideswiping people's equity or accidentally crashing the market? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a delicate balance, and we're working on that. But speculation is what got us here, as well as a, a, a constrained supply. And we want to make sure that we're working in, in, in both areas to make sure that we're uh, discouraging speculation in the market. Uh, we have a proposal that would look at uh, taxing those who are not making and paying taxes already in BC. If they're just using the real estate market as an opportunity to flip properties uh, without uh, making any... Uh, impact on the the provincial economy beyond their own uh, uh, benefit, then we want to clamp down on that. And uh, the Attorney General, Mr. Eby, has been working on that as well and with with the federal government to see what we can do to keep that to a minimum, the the speculation. But we got to bring on more houses. The more houses we bring on, that'll drive down the price. And the last question is MSP. Sheena's saying last question. Yeah. Too late, Sheena. I already said that. Uh, MSP, John, are we going to see that addressed on Monday or, or in February? It will be, uh, and and throughout the term, uh, it start. It was uh, we referenced it today in the throne speech. We, of course, we committed to uh, cutting uh, MSP costs in half uh, uh, by January, coming into the next uh, calendar year, and uh, that'll be laid out uh, in in some detail in the statement on Monday. Excellent, Mr. Premier. Thank you. Okay, man. Good to talk to you, Shane. And that, of course, is Premier John Horgan, and that is it for Inside Politics for this week. Thank you for listening. See you in a week. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First.